a lot's changed. Public policy's changed, and it's worth giving a second look about the idea that reverse mortgages shouldn't just be viewed as a last resort option when all else has failed. They should really be thought strategically as part of an overall retirement income plan. That's Dr. Wade Fow, CFA, Professor of Retirement Income at the American College. Today on Your Money, Your Wealth, he reveals new research on the reverse mortgage as an insurance policy and a versatile investing tool. Dr. Fow also breaks down the realities of the 4% rule for withdrawing income from your portfolio during retirement. As if that wasn't enough, Joe and Big Al have 10 tips to boost your retirement savings, the pros and cons of rolling your 401k into an IRA, tax strategies to consider when paying for long-term care, the latest on the Department of Labor fiduciary rule, the age-old men versus women debate, who's better at investing, and Prince's $250 million estate planning mistake. Now, here are Joe Anderson, CFP, and Big Al Clopine, CPA. Al and I are discussing who is a better at investing men or women. Yeah. And we actually had some backing here. So this is, uh, Fidelity just did a study, uh, and uh, and this was based on a, an analysis of more than 8 million clients. So it's a pretty good sample size. M- women, men, which are better investors? Fidelity. Fidelity. Got 8 million people to answer a survey. I don't know if it's a survey or not. I think they just looked at returns. You know, and they knew the the whether someone was a male or female. Well, how how about if Kim, Pat, <laughs> I, th- I don't know. Lynn, but I, I will... you know we there's a client we have uh, Dale, yeah, female, yeah, true, yeah. I've never seen a female Dale. <laughs> <laughs> when you fill out an application for an account, are you supposed to put your your sex? No, male or female? I, well, I don't know. Yeah, I don't, I don't either. I, don't, I haven't really paid attention. Yeah, to I don't know if I've ever checked the ask, check the box. Ask our operations department whether you're supposed to put that. I'm guessing, I'm guessing no, but I, I don't know how they got this information. But nevertheless, who do you think, men or women, are better investors? Well, I know the answer. You do? Yeah, it's women. It is women. Yeah, you're right about that. And here's what they found. They found that, and it wasn't that much different. So men, on average, save 8.6% of their salary annually. So they're looking at 401k plans. Okay. Maybe they're, you know what? It's just a 401k plan participants. 401k plans. You know what? Because Fidelity does a lot of 401k plans, and they probably have the the census, and they probably know whether they're male or female. So that's probably how they got the information. So this isn't the average. This is of those that actually are in the 401k. There's people that don't participate. So of those that participate in the 401k plan, of these 8 million people, let's say half men, half women, whatever, I don't know what the breakdown is, uh, men save 8.6% of their salary annually, and women save 9%. So women save just a little bit more than men as a percentage. And men, uh, on average, earn 6% rate of return, and women, 64 percent rate of return. So it's not hugely different, but it is different. And and so Fidelity came up with some examples. Like for example, let's say you started at age twenty two. Now that's a that's a tall order and you're making fifty grand, but that, this is the sample. <laughs> and then by thirty you're you're making seventy five thousand, by forty you're making a hundred thousand, by fifty you're making one twenty five. So you just use these percentages. For... So the men are saving eight and women are saving nine and they're getting yeah, point uh, four percent higher. Yeah, call it eight and a half. We'll round it for men. Nine percent saving for women. So, all right. So let's say uh, by the time they retire at age sixty-seven, so they're using full retirement age for Social Security, uh, women would have two hundred seventy-six thousand more 
dollars in their retirement account had they started at age 22, given these assumptions. Huh. If they started age 30 with a $75,000 salary, they would have had 195000 more. They started age 40 with a 100000 salary, they would have had almost 100000 uh, more than men. And at age 50, uh, they would have had about 35000 more, given those assumptions. But there is a flaw in this analysis, because women's portfolios are lower than men's. So any idea why that would be? They're more conservative. They are more conservative, but here they're making the higher rate of return, oh. 6.4%. Oh, no, because of the lower wage. Yeah, that's the problem, right? There's still not equality on wages, and so that's why women's portfolios are lower, yet they're saving a higher percentage and they're earning a higher rate of return. And people have speculated why that is, and Fidelity has an idea, because they can look at the behavior of the investors, and they know that men tend to buy and sell, buy and sell, buy and sell, get in and out pick this stock, sell that stock, women invest for the long term. I would imagine if you would take a look at the asset allocation of men versus women in that study, which I don't think they do, they just take a look at the rate of return. It didn't say. I would say men are taking on a lot more risk. I would say that and they are t- And they're getting a lower rate of return. Yeah, yeah. I would I would be almost and willing if, to bet if, a, a it, year's pay on that. Right. Yeah. And that's a big paycheck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's my big wallet would suffer from that. Huh? And so, but if so, if women would take on the same amount of risk as men, but had the discipline as they do, right? As good investors as they are, yeah, they that, would have a lot more money, right? And and exactly. And so, if uh, you know, so the men are probably much more allocation in the stock market, but they're getting in and out. And we know from emotional investing that your emotions sort of play tricks on you. That you have a tendency to buy and sell at the wrong times because you're you get excited about the market when when it's going up, when it's already high, when everyone's talking about it. You're buying, so you're buying high, and you get nervous and fearful about the market when it goes down, that's natural emotions, and you sell, and so you're buying high and selling low, and it's not a great recipe for success. So women are, and it does say, although it doesn't quantify, it says that women uh, across the board played it more safe than men. Right, doesn't quantify it, but that's we've we've read other studies that say the same thing, that women tend to invest more conservatively. Interestingly enough, though, investing more conservatively than men, they still have a higher rate of return because they're staying invested, right? And it's not a, it's not a huge difference in rate of return, but I, I would agree with you, Joe, if women were, would be a little bit more aggressive, I'm not saying a lot more aggressive, but maybe a little bit less conservative, having a little bit more stock allocation for the long term, staying invested, then their, their percentage rate of return over the long term would be actually significantly higher than men, I would say. Or you could look at it like this, is that um, what we have found and with the academic research is that if they bought the right categories of stock within their stock allocation, so taking the right types of risks. Yeah. So if you look at most portfolios, they'll probably be in, in the stock or equity component, it's large company USA stocks, yeah, right? which is what most people would do, like if uh, maybe an S and P five hundred fund, right? Which is a great fund. Sure. Warren Buffett says so, and I would tend to agree with that. Or, yeah, but that's just five hundred stocks, and yeah. those are all large companies, yes. and those are safer companies, and they have right. by definition a lower expected rate of return because they're safer. Yeah. So, but if they had a little bit more allocation, let's say if they did 
played the safer route of saying, I want you know 60% bonds, 40% stocks, where maybe men are 70% stocks and 30% bonds. But So you can have more bonds in your portfolio or safer investments in your portfolio and have a little bit in a smaller component of stocks. But then if you diversify those stocks in such a way to take advantage of the risk premiums, right, the, the higher expected return asset classes, such as you know value companies, lower price companies, smaller companies, emerging markets, um, and just being a little bit more sophisticated in that strategy, you know, that I think that would give them even a bigger boost. Yeah, potentially. And I, and I think that's a really good point, Joe, because we find that uh, obviously to stay ahead of inflation, to grow your portfolio, you've got to take some risk in your portfolio. You've got to have some stock allocation. But we find that most people's risks is it's all over the place. Right. It's haphazard. Exactly. Is probably a good word. Right. And uh, you can be a lot more intelligent on versus how you, having how you, a well-defined strategy. Right. of What is the appropriate risk that you should take? Right. And you're right. Certain asset classes over the long term outperform other asset classes because simply because they're riskier, right? So small companies and value companies, as you mentioned, are two of those classes that outperform large companies and growth companies. And, and it's, they have. They have in the past, yeah. And, and that's not to say it happens every year. You can, you can go five-year period and that does, you don't see it, but over the long term uh, and generally over five years and 10 years, you will notice, I mean, it's, it's like 90th percentile that those, those kinds of uh, Index asset funds, classes, asset right. classes, right? Beat the beat the the S and P five hundred. So yeah, it's just being a little bit smarter on putting these portfolios together, and it's all about not only your rate of return, but it's mitigating your risk. It's two things in one, and that gets especially important when you're near retirement and you start drawing the dollars out of your portfolio. Right, because let's say that Alan has a portfolio of seventy percent stocks, thirty percent bonds. Well, with that much exposure of stocks, that's a lot riskier portfolio then let's say if I have a portfolio with only 40% stocks right he's got 70 I have 40 but his stock allocation might just like you said haphazardly I need to take risk but you're not necessarily sure what type of risk or where to go to get the return that you need so let's say you just go large company right so he's going to receive a lot more volatility in the entire portfolio because he has a lot more stock in his portfolio but if I look at my portfolio we could could have the same expected rate of return, right? But I only have forty percent of my allocation to stocks, where versus seventy, and I can still achieve the goal, right? But then it's just doing it a little bit more sophisticated. So, congratulations to all the women out there. Um, great job. Keep up the good work. Can your portfolio stand up to a stress test? Find out. Visit yourmoneyyourwealth.com and sign up for a free financial assessment with a certified financial planner who will stress test your portfolio. Are you on track for retirement? How much money will you need in retirement? How much income can you get from your portfolio? What social security strategies are available to you? Are your investments aligned with your goals? Stress test your portfolio. Sign up for a free two-meeting assessment with a certified financial planner at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. Alan, I think we have the smartest man in the universe on the telephone right now. I, I think so, too. And it's really going to class up our show, I think, which uh, is a good thing. We have Dr. Wade Fowle. Uh, he's one of the most brilliant financial minds in our industry and is making um, quite an impact on some of the research that he's doing. Yeah, I think so, too. In fact, uh, I read every one of his articles because I know I'm going to get like the top information out there. Dr. Fowle, welcome to the show, my friend. 
Thank you, and thanks. That's the nicest introduction I've heard, so thank you very much. Oh. We, we worked on that all morning. Y- yes, <laughs> I've been practicing it all week. <laughs> hey, so it's been a few years since you've been on the show. Let's talk a little bit of some of the things that you're doing, um, you know, really diving into, you know, looking at creating income in retirement. And I think a lot of people get confused that the strategies that they built you know, that they use to build up wealth needs to change once they start taking a look at retirement. Right. And that's really been my focus in terms of retirement income planning really being a unique field that's different from traditional wealth management or the, the approach is used for accumulating assets. That it's really the combined impacts of longevity risk, not knowing how long someone's going to live. And then market volatility that gets further amplified once you transition from adding new savings to your investments to taking distributions from your savings, that that, the combined impact of that longevity risk and the increased market risk that really makes retirement income into a different type of problem requiring different kinds of solutions. Sure. So if the market goes down, you know, the sequence of return risk is mm-hmm. is pretty major because if I'm saving, volatile mar- markets are my friend because then I'm buying the same good stocks or bonds or uh, same good stocks at a lower price. But if I have that volatility when I'm taking distributions, that could blow me up. Right. It's the opposite effect. Sometimes it's called reverse dollar cost averaging because if you're trying to fund a spending level and your portfolio is losing value, you have to sell more shares to meet your spending rather than when you're accumulating, you get to buy more more shares on the cheap. People will need to take risk in their portfolio, though, right, in retirement because of what you just said. Um, we're living a heck of a lot longer. Um, a lot of individuals haven't saved enough, and the retirement is going to be by far their biggest expense of their life. And so what what do they do? So I do think that stock market investments are still very important for retirement. It's really kind of the bonds that play a smaller role, in my view, in a retirement income plan. But I think one has to be careful about not getting too carried away with the stock market and not having the entire lifestyle exposed to the stock market. So I I think in practical terms, it's really about integrating different approaches where you have the investment portfolio still, but you also look at, at more reliable income sources to cover some of the basics. And that's not necessarily bond mutual funds or bond ETFs, but either holding individual bonds or looking at different types of simple income annuities that provide a lifetime income, or just really integrating Social Security and any traditional defined benefit pension that someone has into their plan as well. But having at least core retirement expenses covered through something that's not really reliant upon big returns from the stock market or the idea that the stock market needs to outperform the bond market, because that does happen over the long term. But with the sequence of returns risk in retirement, if it doesn't happen, if the stock market's not doing well in the early part of retirement, that can be a big problem. And then even if the stock market does well over the long term, the retiree might be in a position where they don't get to fully benefit from the stock market performance. Yeah, I, I know, Wade, when you do retire, I think one of the first questions we'll get from people is, how much can I actually spend in retirement? And I know there's been this 4% rule for a long time, meaning that 4% of your portfolio is a safe withdrawal rate. I know you've done a lot of work on this, and, and, and what would you say right now would, would be your thoughts on, on withdrawal rates? 
Well, there's a lot that goes into deciding a withdrawal rate, but the the 4% rule was really a simplification, and it has a lot of simplified assumptions built into it. But if you're going to follow that type of approach where you always want to adjust your spending for inflation, my two big concerns right now are that Americans are living longer and longer, especially kind of the higher wealth, higher income Americans, that the assumptions behind the 4% rule, that the, the idea that 30 years is long enough for a retirement plan, you might really need to plan for more than 30 years. And then also with interest rates being so low, it's something we haven't really experienced all that much in U.S. history. There was just a brief time in the early 1940s where we saw low interest rates like we've seen in recent years. And when you put the two of those together, longer lifespans, lower interest rates, I think that for someone that really wants that inflation-adjusted spending from their retirement to last for as long as they live, that 3% would be a more realistic number than 4% with the situation we face now. And how does that change when you're older? Like some people retire at 55 and some at 75. Well, the the 4% rule, as it was originally designed, was meant to last for 30 years. And so if you need to plan for longer than 30 years, then that implies spending less than the 4% rule if you... If you're older, if you're 75 or 80, you may not need to plan for 30 years. Maybe something shorter is is reasonable, and that would allow for a higher spending rate than the 4% rule. You, you know, Wade, I always look at it, and maybe I'm you're, you're a hell of a lot smarter than I am, but if if I'm looking at the 4% rule, I've always used that as, as kind of a target, or I mean 3%, whatever percent we want to use, is to look at a target to get people close to how big of a nest egg that they actually need to maintain a certain level of lifestyle that they're accustomed to. But mm-hmm. in, in real practice, you know, taking, you know, a certain percentage, fixed percentage out of someone's portfolio, I, I think you need to be a little bit more sophisticated of looking at, you know, like you were talking about earlier, what are the different cash flows? How much money are you going to get from Social Security? What are your true expenses? Do you have, um, you know, a pension plan, real estate income and everything else? And so just creating that income based on their specifics versus, all right, well, I'm going to pull 4% out. Right. Absolutely. You need to really think about the entire picture. And that's where some some recent research that doesn't get discussed as much, but that it's relevant. It's this idea that the whole concept of the 4% rule is just around spending from your investment portfolio. But if you have other reliable income sources from outside your investments, social security and pensions and so forth, then your lifestyle is not as exposed to if your portfolio declines in value, you could potentially spend at a higher rate and enjoy that money. It's more discretionary in nature for you because you do have your lifestyle protected in other ways. So there is a lot more to the picture in thinking about building a retirement income plan. It's not just a question of how much can I spend for my investments, but really how can I maintain my lifestyle with all the different resources I have available. Hey, um, you know, with your comment about bonds, um, would you consider then, let's say if I had a pension in Social Security, would you consider that my bond alternative and then potentially have more stocks in the overall port, um, you know, in my liquid portfolio? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that sort of analysis that Social Security and pensions really behave like bonds. They provide an ongoing income, and they're even more powerful than bonds because 
they provide that spending power for as long as it's needed, for as long as the person lives. And that helps to protect their lifestyle so that they're not exposed to, if the stock market loses value, but you have all your lifestyle covered through this sort of social security pension combination, then you have the ability to go ahead and weather that stock market volatility. And therefore, if you want, it justifies having a more aggressive stock allocation for your investment portfolio. Absolutely. Quiz time. What investing tool can act as a line of credit that can help you make Roth conversions, manage your retirement tax brackets, delay taking Social Security, and act as an insurance policy against emergencies? Time's up. Did you guess reverse mortgage? Probably not, considering the bad rap they get. Dr. Wade Fow's new book, Reverse Mortgages, How to Use Reverse Mortgages to Secure Your Retirement, explains how, when used correctly, reverse mortgages can provide an added layer of security for retirees and allow them to enjoy retirement more by gaining liquidity from an illiquid asset. You can get a copy of this groundbreaking book free. Click on special offer at yourmoneyyourwealth.com or call 888-99-GOALS. That's 888-994-6257 for your free copy of Reverse Mortgages, How to Use Reverse Mortgages to Secure Your Retirement by Dr. Wade Fow. Click on special offer at yourmoneyyourwealth.com or call 888-99-GOALS. That's 888-994-6257 or yourmoneyyourwealth.com. Hey, welcome back. Show's called Your Money, Your Wealth. Joe Anderson here with Big Al Clopine talking to Wade Fow. Hey, I want to switch gears a second. And you've done a lot of work recently on reverse mortgages. And, uh, you know, Al and I have been doing this show for more years, I think, than now we want to admit. We've lost track. <laughs> and it's so boring, Dr. Fow. This show is just awful. I'm surprised we're still on the air. I, I am too. <laughs> and, but, you know, I would say 10 years ago, we would think a reverse mortgage is a, like the last resort. That's, you know, all right, pull the plug, you, you know, let's dive into the equity. But some of the research that you're doing, um, saying reverse mortgages might make some sense. Can you tell our listeners and help them out basically what is a reverse mortgage, some pros and cons of it, and then how do you put that in an overall income strategy? Right. Yeah. Well, so just background about that. Reverse mortgages, it's an income tool that I started looking at about three years ago, but I shared the conventional wisdom about them is that they're a bad idea. And there's all kinds of late night commercials about them that just lead to a bad reputation. But a lot's changed in recent years. And there's been a lot of research in the Journal of Financial Planning, in particular, that the financial advisors use, that talks about not using the reverse mortgage as a last resort, but using it as part of a strategic and coordinated retirement plan. And in doing so, so the, the basic idea that reverse mortgage provides a way to tap into the value of your home to provide the spending power from your home. If you borrow from your home's equity, then it, it goes into the loan balance. And then when the, the individual leaves their home and the loan becomes due, that, that is the time that the loan becomes due. And uh, But the power and what all the research has been focused on is the idea that if you initiate a reverse mortgage earlier in retirement, you can set it up as a line of credit. And that line of credit actually can grow throughout retirement. And that can become a very valuable tool as part of the retirement plan that can be used in a number of different ways, either what could be used to to pay down any existing mortgage so you don't carry that into retirement. It can be used to coordinate with the investment portfolio that if 
markets are down, rather than selling your assets at a loss and triggering that sequence of returns risk, you could instead spend from the reverse mortgage line of credit. It can just provide a, a source of funds to be able to do other things that really help in the long run with a retirement plan, like delaying Social Security or uh, well, doing things like Roth conversions or just managing your taxes in retirement because it's not taxable income, it's proceeds from a loan. And it can just be set up as a type of insurance policy that if you run out of money in retirement or if your home declines in value or you have a you need in-home care as part of a big, the beginning stages of a long-term care issue, the, the line of credit could be used for that. So really, a lot's changed. Public policy has changed, and it's worth giving a second look about the idea that reverse mortgages shouldn't just be viewed as a last resort option when all else has failed. They should really be thought strategically as part of an overall retirement income plan. How does the line of credit work? How does it grow? Yeah, that that's the key question to understand that, to understand why it, it seems like it's a magical thing too good to be true. And the basic idea is there's what you're really doing with a reverse mortgage is you're tapping into a principal limit. And that principal limit is equal to the loan balance plus the line of credit. And, and there can be a couple other little factors, but basically just to think about it simply, loan balance plus line of credit. And I think everyone can understand why a loan balance would grow. If you borrow, you can expect interest to accumulate on that. But the interesting thing about the reverse mortgage is if you open it and you're not borrowing from it, so you're, you don't have a big loan balance, well, it's, it's the principal limit that's growing. And instead of it being represented as a loan balance that's growing, it's instead represented as a line of credit that's growing. So I don't think there was necessarily this idea when reverse mortgages got going that people would open them and not tap into them. Basically, the idea is people would open a reverse mortgage and borrow heavily from it. And then it would just be the loan balance that grows. But if you open the reverse mortgage and you keep a low loan balance, then it's the line of credit that grows instead. And that's the basic process for why that happens. And then you can tap into that line of credit at any time at any amount? Mm-hmm. Yeah, up until up to the, the value, the maximum value you have available. But right, it's very flexible in how it can be used. Hey, I, I want to talk about a, a strategy with reverse mortgages that you've talked about that I think is really clever. So th- this would be a 65, 66-year-old who retires, and typically, so they'd start their Social Security, right? And let's say all their assets are in their IRAs or 401ks, so they start withdrawing to pay their lifestyle. Can you explain how a reverse mortgage would be used then to perhaps delay Social Security and maybe even look at Roth conversions? Mm-hmm. Well, with the idea of del- so these are both things where Roth conversions, delaying Social Security, you pay more early on, but you get a big benefit later on in retirement. And so paying more early on, well, the, the reverse mortgage can be used as a source of funds. Like if I decide to delay Social Security, but I need some spending power now, I can draw from the reverse mortgage as a way to help support being able to go ahead and delay Social Security. Roth conversions, this is all about the kind of tax bracket management in retirement. If I retire in my early 60s and I delay Social Security until age 70, and then my, my RMD, my required minimum distributions, don't start until 70 and a half. I may have very low taxable income during my 60s. That can be a case where I, I want to take advantage of my 10%, my 15%, 25% tax brackets, pay taxes at those lower tax rates today so that later on, after 70, when Social Security starts, 
when I have to start taking required minimum distributions, I don't push myself up into the higher tax brackets beyond that level. And so getting assets out of my IRA, moving them into the Roth, paying taxes at lower tax rates in the short term can really help the financial plan in the long term. And again, the reverse mortgage can provide the funds to be able to pay those taxes without further increasing your taxable income since the, the proceeds from the reverse mortgage do not go into the, the AGI, the adjusted gross income. They're not taxable income for the individual. Hey, so delaying Social Security um, is kind of the topic of most advisors. But there's also the question of, like, break even. You know, should I take it, save it, invest it, spend it, or wait? I heard this eight delayed retirement credit. You know, what is what is your thought with Social Security and, and what claiming strategies are out there? Um, you, you know, it's funny. I think the more information and education people receive, it's delay. But I know you see the statistics as much as Al and I, and still most people are taking it as soon as they can get it. Right. Uh, it, it's come down a little bit, but still close to, well, maybe 40% of Americans are taking Social Security as early as they can. And there may be a few cases where that's a good idea, but generally speaking, especially for the high earner in a couple, I think it's a, a bad idea to claim Social Security early that for kind of more above average income or above average wealth individuals will live longer than the average American. And Social Security built in all these factors to to benefit delaying Social Security. They designed that in 1982, and it was meant to be fair at the time in terms of it didn't matter what age you claim Social Security. You should still get the same lifetime benefits if you live to life expectancy. Since 1982, people are living much longer and also interest rates are lower. They were, they were looking at real interest rates of around 3% at that time, when today, if you look at tips yield, the inflation-protected bonds, even a 30-year tips is only around 1%. So the, both of those factors, the lower interest rates today and the fact that people are living longer, really strengthen the case for at least a high earner in a couple to delay Social Security to age 70, that they're going to live, the, the probability that they'll live beyond that break-even each to, to make it a good idea, it's well above 50%. So it, really the odds are in favor of benefiting from delaying Social Security. So, sometimes people, though, that are high earners, they'll, they'll say, we're concerned there's going to be means testing later, so I want to take it as early as I can. What do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, that's the argument that I don't really have a, a great response for. The whole history of Social Security was that it was never meant to be viewed as any type of welfare program. It was always meant you contribute into the program, you're going to get benefits. I never thought means testing would be a political reality. But in the most recent presidential election campaign, I, one of the candidates, not who became a nominee, <laughs> but who dropped out of the race earlier, was talking about means testing. And that really surprised me so that I can no longer make this claim that means testing can never happen. So that that could it is a potential reform for people who are already close to social security claiming age, there would be a good chance that any if that reform means testing reform happened, you could kind of be grandfathered out of it applying to people who are very close to retirement today. It would more likely be something that would apply to younger people. 
but but it is you know you can there's no way to guess what's going to happen with public policy and though i think it would be unlikely it's it's not an impossible reform and and that could be a reason to claim early if you were particularly worried that might happen Hey, Wade, where do people find you? Where, where can people read your work and everything else? My home on the Internet is just retirementresearcher.com, all one word, retirementresearcher. And that's where I blog and everything else. Hey, Wade, thanks so much. Dr. Wade Fowles' new book, Reverse Mortgages, How to Use Reverse Mortgages to Secure Your Retirement, explains how, when used correctly, reverse mortgages can provide an added layer of security for retirees and allow them to enjoy retirement more by gaining liquidity from an illiquid asset. You can get a copy of this groundbreaking book free. Click on Special Offer at YourMoneyYourWealth.com or call 888-99-GOALS. That's 888-994-6257 for your free copy of Reverse Mortgages, How to Use Reverse Mortgages to Secure Your Retirement by Dr. Wade Fowl. Click on special offer at yourmoneyyourwealth.com or call 888-99-GOALS. That's 888-994-6257 or yourmoneyyourwealth.com. Time now for Big Al's List. Every week, Big Al Clopine scours the media to find the best tips, do's and don'ts, mistakes, myths, and advice to improve your overall financial picture. In handy bullet point format. This week, 10 tips to boost your retirement savings. This is a, a top 10 list. This is kind of like the Dave Letterman list, the cut, countdown. Okay. 10 down to 1. Sounds good. And number 10 uh, is, uh, is an obvious one, but sometimes we need reminding. Take advantage of the employer match. If you have a 401k or 403b that has an employer match, you certainly want to contribute enough of your own salary to fully max out that employer match. In other words, you put in a dollar, your employer puts in a dollar. It's like free money to you. It's like increasing your salary and improving your retirement. And it's amazing how many people actually don't do that. It's over 25% of the people out there don't maximize their plan. And it's, what, something like $24 billion left on the table each and every year. Yeah, it's huge. $24 billion. Billion, with a B. <laughs> This is, yeah, so definitely take advantage of that. Uh, here's another one. No matter what you're saving, Joe, keep increasing it. Agree? I like that, yeah. yeah you, you like that? Yeah. Well, yeah, you know, it depends on when you start. Right. But have a, a goal of 15% of your income to be saved. Yeah, I think And if you can get that, that then goal. you want to continue to increase it, in my opinion. I don't think anyone's ever got to retirement and says, man, I wish I didn't save this much money. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and of course, we've actually read books and articles and actually had some guests on our show that say, you know what, if you want to retire before age 35, then you got to save about 75% of your <laughs> yeah. income. So, so if you're into that, then, then great. But for the rest of us that uh, want to live a certain lifestyle, 15% is a good goal. But when you're, Joe, when you're in your 20s and 30s, that seems impossible, right? And so, so here, here's, here's the, what you do instead, uh, is you work up to it. So start with 1% of your income or 2%, and each year, increase that a little bit. You get a little raise, hopefully cost of living. Maybe you get a merit raise because you get a promotion. Every time you get a raise, make sure that you're increasing that percentage because if it's out of sight, out of mind, uh, that it's, it's so hard to save when you actually have the money in your hands. But if it, if it uh, gets taken from your paycheck before it comes to you, it's not that difficult to adjust to that lower net pay. I mean, you look at anything else in life. You ask someone in their 50s, 60s, and 70s, and it's just a simple question. If you know, Would you have saved more money if you could go back in time? 
How many, what percentage do you think would say no? I'm going to say 99% would say yes. There's probably one person that would say no. But right? Yeah. Was like, no way. Yeah, you know? I, I say plenty. I wanted to live. <laughs> so, no, I mean, you know, so you just got to take a look at, you know, certain things of when you purchase because when you hit your 50s, 60s, and 70s, you don't want to be, man, I wish I would have saved more. Right, you you need to you know, start as soon as you can. And if you're in your 50s, 60s, and 70s, well, now's your time. You know, you're probably in your peak earning years is to bank and save as absolutely as much as you can. Right. Number eight, Joe, is automate your retirement plan increases. Boy, that's, uh, that's really important, tr- too. So automate means like a 401k, right? Out of sight, out of mind. Pay yourself first is the concept. And because most people that don't have an automatic saving plan, what they do is they, they wait till month end and see what's left over mm-hmm. in their bank account. And usually, interestingly enough, nothing's left over, right? And so they don't save anything. Well, I couldn't do it this month because the car broke down. Right. I, couldn't, I couldn't do this month because we had, uh, you know, little Sally, we had, uh, we had to buy a new bicycle right. for her or whatever. Well, you will, you'll find a way to live within your means. Right. So save first, pay yourself first, and then spend everything else. It's the easiest way to budget. You know, then you're not going to spend hours on, you know, spreadsheets and, you know, journals and everything else, fighting with your spouse, what you spent this on X or whatever. <laughs> right. Just right. try to come up with a certain percentage of your income that you want to save and then go from there. Then if you want to get a little bit more sophisticated in your strategy, then you say, all right, well, how much money do we need in the next 10, 20, 30 years, whatever your retirement date is or whatever goal that you're shooting for, and then find out how much money that you should be saving. Is it 20%, 25%? Well, at least you know that you need to be saving that percentage. So if you say, we'll start with one, five, 10, yeah, that's all great. I think that's a good start. But you also then, when because when, when it comes time to buy something that you know may not Right, it's just kind of like an impulse buy. You're like, well, damn, I'm only saving ten percent of my income. I know I should be saving fifteen. Do I buy this or do I, you know, can I save a little bit more? Right. Yeah. And if and if it's out of sight, out of mind, you're gonna do the right thing. And and once it gets into a retirement account, keep it there. Right. Don't take it out. I mean, the penalties are amazing. Number seven, don't forget the catch-up contribution. When you're 50 and older, a 401k, when you're younger than 50, you can put $18,000 into a 401k. When you're 50 and older, you can add another $6,000. So that's $24,000 that you can put into a 401k. And with an IRA, regular IRA, Roth IRA, $5,500 is the normal amount. But once you're 50 and older, you can add another $1,000. So it's $6,500. Then there's simple plans. I think the catch-up on a simple plan is another $3,000. How about a SARSEP? (laughs) SARSEP, I don't know, because that plan ceased to exist about 25 years ago. (laughs) Old news. We actually had a client that came in with one of those, and I had to explain it to our younger advisors what a SARSEP was. It's a salary reduction uh, self-employed pension plan is what it is. All right, number six, Joe, is... Check the fees on your investments because some investments are rather expensive. Some of those retail mutual funds that are trying to time the market um, will have higher costs than, say, some a lot of index funds and ETFs, which are basically buying a, just uh, an index with you, if you will, and not really trying to buy and sell to time the market. And if you look at two equal 
index funds. Let's say two. Or, yeah, but I'm still going to argue with this whole fee stuff. Uh, I, I'm going to argue back. The first point, of course, is you have to have the right allocation, and that's where you're going to go. But once you have the right allocation, you could either invest in the S&P 500 to fill the large company, or you could invest in a retail mutual fund that buys large companies that's trying to beat the market. Those are more expensive. Those tend to lag the indexes. Those tend to lag the passive investments. So given that, I would rather go with a cheaper fund. Okay, you can't You can't argue that. Number five, put yourself on a budget. Agree or disagree? Yeah, well, no, I... It's very difficult to stay on a budget. Yeah. No one wants to do that. Right. I would much rather pay myself first than spend everything else. I think that's for the average person that, you know, maybe you're an engineer, you're an accountant that loves to look at this every week or month or whatever. But for the the rest of us, of course, I'm an accountant. Even I don't like budgeting. But for the rest of us, it's like, all right, let's, let's save as much as we can in a 401k, have it be automatic. And then we know that we can spend what's left from our paycheck. That's, that's all right. And if there is some extra, and hopefully there would be some extra because you want to make sure you have an emergency fund and maybe you want to save for a down payment on a house or maybe you want to save for a kid's college education, things like that. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, budgeting is tough for most people. Number four is look into your health savings account. So if you have a, a health savings uh, insurance plan, make sure that you are funding that. I think it's, I think the married couple, it's about 6700 give or take, um, and single is about half of that. Do you have your cheat sheet there? Yeah, but I'm in the middle of my list, so oh. I can't pull it out. So yeah, I mean, I think if you, if you don't understand what a health savings account is, it's a high deductible health insurance plan that you can put money in pre-tax. That health savings account grows tax-free, and then when you use it for medical expenses, uh, you can take it out tax-free. Be careful with if you're getting close to Social Security age, uh, because once you elect to collect Social Security, you are automatically enrolled then in Medicare, and then Medicare and HSA plans are not compatible, so it will blow up your HSA plan. So there, there, there could be taxes and penalties. Uh, so just FYI. All right. I do have the numbers, Joe. If you're an individual, you can put $3,400 into an HSA savings account. Uh, and families, 6750 And if husband or wife is 50 and older, you can do an extra $1,000 on top of that. Got it. So the, yeah, the nice thing about that is the money goes in you get a tax deduction, and the, 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 all those assets grow tax-free as long as you use them for medical down the line. And you can carry them over year after year. And number three is make sure you have the right kind of account. In other words, there's more than one place to invest. It's not just a 401k. If, you, if, you, if it makes sense to put money to a Roth IRA, make sure you're doing that. Or a non-retirement account gives you some flexibility in retirement. Number two is don't forget the saver's credit. So if your income is low enough and you're still putting money... <laughs> you got to make... If you make more than ten grand, $4,000, you don't get the saver's credit. But if you qualify uh, and, and you, you're filing your return by hand, you're going to miss out on that. And number one, <laughs> remember that payroll contributions to a retirement plan can lower your taxes. And that's a big one because a lot of people say, well, I can't put more money into the 401k because I can't afford it. Well, it's going to lower your tax bill. So you put 1000 bucks in, it's only going to cost you $700, $600, depending upon your tax bracket, right? right? Because you're saving taxes. 
Can your portfolio stand up to a stress test? Find out. Visit yourmoneyyourwealth.com and sign up for a free financial assessment with a certified financial planner who will stress test your portfolio. Are you on track for retirement? How much money will you need in retirement? How much income can you get from your portfolio? What social security strategies are available to you? Are your investments aligned with your goals? Stress test your portfolio. Sign up for a free two-meeting assessment with a certified financial planner at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. Hey, a couple of things, Alan. When it comes to long-term care and long-term care type planning or paying for it, right? not necessarily the insurance, but paying for a long-term care or assisted living facility. So it's to have a plan to pay for the cost, whether it's insurance or some other way. And I want to talk about taxes in regards to funding it. Okay. All right? Because let's say if I'm funding long-term care, right? sometimes it's like, well, you have a brokerage account or you have an IRA account. Which one would be more appropriate to fund long-term care? care. Are you talking about when you're paying for it yourself? Yes, yes, yes. Okay, when you're paying it for yourself. Not not, not yes. taking money out of a retirement account to buy an insurance policy, yes, right. but now, you know, hey, I'm in a facility, or maybe I'm the, the, the successor trustee um, and power of attorney of my mother's estate, and right. she needs to go, and I have... And I got to figure out. Well, how do I pay for her care? Yeah, that's it's a it's a really good question, and and it depends on a few variables. I would say, uh, one is what kind of long term care, right? Whether it's just you know some convalescent care that you're going to be in temporarily uh, and then get out, or or it's assisted living, or if it's full on convalescent, you know, long term care, kind of a nursing home type of thing. So if it's the first two, it really depends upon your tax bracket, uh, and it, you're going to get some tax deduction for those payments. Uh, and so, honestly, you kind of have to do a tax projection based upon your circumstance to see what would be better. But I can't say generally if it's if it's a full-on nursing home, the IRS lets you deduct that 100%, right, as a medical right. deduction. Right, so let's say 70 grand a year. Yeah, so 70000 comes out of your... IRA, which is taxable, but you get a $70,000 medical deduction. Not quite, because there's a couple limitations, but you get the idea. So you might as well take the money out of your IRA because you get that deduction anyway. And sometimes we see people just paying it for out of their savings, right. and they end up with negative taxable income, and they, they missed a huge opportunity. Right, because they'll um, they'll look at the IRA and they'll say, well, I don't want to pull that out because you know there's going to be income tax on that. But then they're paying for care out of cash, right. or um, their brokerage account that has a lot lower you know, capital gains rate, yeah, let's say. Right. And maybe they don't even have that much other income. They have Social Security and a small pension. Right. And then you're paying another $70,000 out of cash to fund that care. You get a huge deduction that's going to wipe out all the other income. And then there's even more of a deduction that you could have written off ordinary income and not paid any tax on it. Yeah. I've seen numerous cases where people have negative taxable income. Sometimes, Joe, even, even when they pay for the long-term care uh, or the, or the, yeah, the, the long-term convalescent care out of their IRA, they still end up with negative taxable income. And if they got money, extra money in those IRAs, you might as well look at a Roth conversion. And it's, it's really, at this point, it's probably going to be more for the kid's benefit than your benefit. Right. But we see this all the time. And, and sometimes on this show, we've talked about it, which is if you've got a parent who is in a nursing home and taking advantage of all these deductions, creating negative taxable income, and there's obviously money in an IRA potentially, then why not look at a Roth conversion? Maybe to the top of the 15% bracket, which for a single person would be about $37,000. 
$1,000 taxable income, meaning that if ta- if taxable income without a Roth conversion is, let's just call it about negative 10000 so roughly almost $50,000 would be your Roth conversion, give or take, to get to the top of that 15% bracket. What that's going to do is when you as the children end up inheriting what's left of the IRA, then it will be tax-free in a Roth IRA. Presumably your tax rate is greater than that 15% rate, and and you'll completely benefit from that. Right. Well, so... It's, it sounds like, all right, well, mom and dad goes in a nursing home. We can get a great tax tax break. Oh. Yeah, but you know what, though? <laughs> but it's just utilizing it's, the tax code to it's, your... It's family planning, and, and, and sometimes even if your parent really isn't quite fully aware what, what's going on, they would want it. I mean, no one likes to pay more taxes. And, and when when you know that you're, obviously your assets are ultimately going to go to your children, you would want the, the your children to pay the least amount of taxes possible. Right. So there's um, looking at just... Cre- and this is just one deduction that we see that is missed, and I just saw that, so that's why I wanted to mention it, is that they were paying for the care with the wrong pool of money. Right. Right? Yeah. And so it was creating a large tax deduction on the tax return, and they were like, oh, yeah, we're, you know, well, mom hasn't paid taxes in years, she's only, but she's got you know $700,000 in a retirement account. Well- Take the retirement dollars out first, you right. know, because then that will then help with those that deduction that would offset that income. Yeah. You still won't pay any tax or very little tax, exactly. But then you can just kind of maneuver the money because if mom were to pass with that big retirement account, well, then it's going to be taxable to the kids. So depending on what their tax rate is, that's what the tax they're going to potentially pay. Of course, they don't have to pull everything out. They can take a you know their required distribution over their lifetime. But still, it's it's looking at all sorts of different things when it comes to planning, right? Right, and it's it's uh, when it comes to the the other levels of care, like assisted living, for example. There is a medical component with assisted living facilities, and usually at year end, the the facility will tell you Allocate. what that is, and usually it's twenty percent or fifteen percent or something like that. In other words, if you pay fifty thousand dollars and 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 20% of that is, uh, what is that? That's about $10,000. That would be your deduction. So it's it's a little trickier then to take it out of your IRA because only 20% is sheltered, right? right. But if it's, if it's a nursing home, that's generally 100% because you're there under doctor's orders and it's you're there because you have to be there for medical purposes. So it's all considered medical, your room, your board, and of course all the medical and nursing and that sort of thing. You know, then you have to look at in the future here. So we talked about this over the past couple of weeks with um, President Trump's uh, tax reform proposal. And it was some changes when it comes to taking those types of deductions. So the only deductions uh, that is on his one-page piece of paper is uh, the mortgage deduction and charitable deduction. Yeah, a good point, Joe, because that's, at least as the one-page proposal was, it'd be interesting to have a one-page tax code. But <laughs> but medical deductions uh, are not on there. Uh, and so who knows what's actually going to happen. Right. Neither was state tax. Right, neither was state tax and property taxes, miscellaneous unreimbursed job expenses, investment expenses, those were not on there either. So we'll have to see what happens. But I think uh, I'm not sure that's such a fair deal for because that's that's going to hurt a lot of our oldest um, citizens that are in nursing homes. All of a sudden, those big payments would no longer be tax deductible. Well, then, yeah, they need to have assets, though, to offset. And then if you look, you know, a lot of people haven't saved. So, you right. know, it's 
it's it's I guess you know I wouldn't want that job, right? You, you got no, it's a, <laughs> a lot of different people, right? <laughs> right, right. It's been three decades since the last major tax reform, but this could be about to change in a major way. That said, the president and the Republican Party are still divided on a number of key policy questions. Visit the White Papers section of the Learning Center at yourmoneyyourwealth.com to download the White Paper Tax Reform, Trump versus the House GOP, for a deeper look into the proposals. How might income tax, estate tax, and business tax change? Are your tax strategies at risk? Download the Tax Reform White Paper to find out more. Visit the white paper section of the Learning Center at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. You know, I'm from Minnesota, Al. Yes, I do know that. I grew up, um, I don't know, a few miles away from Prince Rogers Nelson. Right. Boy, he's still in the news. Uh, and because he's an icon, Alan. Yeah, but not necessarily for the right reasons in this um, guest blog in the AICPA Insights. Uh, and the, and the Is that what you do on Saturdays? Read the AICPA Insights? You got it, brother. <laughs> and and sometimes it spills into Sunday morning before I go to church. So it's really a great weekend. <laughs> so here's the title. Learning from Prince's $250 million mistake, because uh, it was almost a year and a month ago that he passed away. And um, a judge confirmed that Prince's six siblings to be his rightful heirs after more than 45 people came forward claiming to be his wife, children, siblings, or other relatives. 45 people. And here was the mistake. The mistake was Prince did not have a trust. He did not have a will. So what happened then was it's left up to the judge and the state law to try to figure out who these assets should go to. Of course, it's a, it's a public record, which is why we know it's $250 million. It's, uh, it's, it's something that can be so easily I would, avoided. I would imagine this estate is still going to be caught up in the courts for another several years. I would think so, too. I mean, because there's, there's assets that are very difficult to put a price on at this point. Right. You know what I mean? Because of all the music that he had that yeah, wasn't because, released. And he's still, his estate is, of course, still receiving income from right. royalties. Sure. And so if you look at, all right, well, let's put out a, um, I, I, I don't know, he might have thousands of songs. And someone puts out maybe five songs of the thousand, and they sell, you know, and, and it, it creates X amount. You got to take a present value look at all those. You know, there's really how, how do you price that? So I would imagine it's more than two hundred fifty million. Yeah, it probably. I mean, that's what it is right now. But in terms of future royalties, and you try to maybe present value that back to current day, it's probably a much bigger number. Sure. If you just set up a will, which about half the people in the country die without a will, if you set up a will, at least the judge has uh, a piece of paper that has your wishes on it. Sure. Now, of course, it's got to go through a court, right? And it's and it's public record and probate fees and, and in some cases, attorney's fees and trustee fees. If you want to avoid all that, that's why you set up a trust. You set up a living trust. And what happens with a trust is there's no court involved. There's no probate. There's no public hearing. There's no nothing. The trustee that you designate, usually it's you to start with, and then there's a a successor trustee when you pass away. They take over and they distribute the assets in accordance to the trust document. And they have to do it. The, The beneficiaries will get all over them if he or she doesn't distribute the trust in accordance with the trust document because they get a copy too. Sure. 
Yeah, then the beneficiaries could sue the successor trustee. Right, and that happens sometimes. Yeah. But the point is, it's uh, I mean, at least get a will because then it's not it's not left up to the judge trying to administer your estate based upon state law. I mean, right? I saw a statistic. It was the the, the major or um, the percentage of. Married couples with kids that oh, do not have any estate planning It's, it's pretty high. I, I want to say it's in the 40%, you would, know, 45%. Yeah, I was thinking it was higher than that, but really, yeah, 70%-ish. Oh, I don't think it's that high, but maybe. I mean, it's because a, a, a lot of the, – the problem is is when you first start raising young children, that's kind of the last thing on your mind is, is – Estate planning, right? But it actually should be one of those things that's near the top of the list after you buy the crib, right? And assemble it. <laughs> yeah, buy some life insurance and yes. then get an estate plan. Yeah, right. Right, because now it. I mean, it, and you can just have simple documents. It doesn't have to be. I think people get maybe a little bit intimidated too by it. It's yeah. Like, oh, now I got to sit down with an attorney, and I don't have a lot of assets, or uh, you know, I don't want to share this, and then I got to think about things that I don't necessarily want to think of, such as you know, death and who's going to take care of junior or you know where did the assets go and you know yeah so and, and, I, so, and, and i get it sometimes joe people say well should i get a will or a trust and and i've heard a lot of attorneys in california say that you know what if you have property in california you probably ought to get a trust right? yeah or or if you don't have property but have some assets, yeah. you know, a few hundred well, thousand of assets. Flow, you know, you want powers of attorney, you want for health care, you want it for, you know, financial yeah, which, reasons. Which, you want. whether you get a trust or not, you definitely want that. But the, usually the people that don't have a will don't have those power of attorney documents either. Right. So then they end up getting sick and their spouse can't even really access their IRA because they don't have power of attorney. Your Money, Your Wealth isn't just a podcast, it's also a TV show. Check out Your Money, Your Wealth on YouTube to see Joe and Big Al talking about planning for retirement over your entire lifespan, investing biases you may not realize you have, social security claiming strategies, and... Pure financial feud. What is the percentage of social security beneficiaries that are women? Uh, Mike? I'm going to go 45%. That is incorrect. Oh. Joe, you have a guess? I had no idea what the question was. <laughs> Watch clips of the Your Money, Your Wealth TV show. Just search YouTube for Pure Financial Advisors and Your Money, Your Wealth. You know, this fiduciary rule. The Department of Labor, right? So now it's coming up. And what's his name? Alex. He spoke. He's the U.S. Labor Secretary. He came out and says, you know, it's June 9th, I believe is the date. Yeah, that's when it goes first goes into effect, or at least part of it. Yes, but it's not really going to actually go into effect until January 1st of 18, like the best interest contracts. And well, I think everything. it's it kind of it's it's kind of staggered. I think some things go into effect, right? Yeah, but there's no way to, because there's no. There's no way to verify if they're actually acting like a fiduciary or not. It's kind of, it's almost like here, try to do this, and January first, we'll really make sure. It, you're right. Doing it. So yeah. then it's going to get pushed out, and then it's like, all right, well, are they actually going to go through with it or not? And uh, who knows? But I found this interesting: is that what? What's his name? Um, Financial Engines. Heard of them? Yes. Sunnydale, uh, California. They surveyed. 93% of Americans believe it's important that all financial advisors be legally required to put clients' best interests first. Yeah. I mean, that's... Who of, would be the 7% that was like, nah? Uh, they're the <laughs> industry that's selling them the products. It was like, 93%, I want them to put my interest first. 7%, I want their I, interest I before really mine. I don't really care if it's... 
in my best interest or not. <laughs> those, those have to be. I like, could really care less. Those have to be the insurance salesmen, don't you think, that are selling the products, that they want to keep selling the products? That would vote? No. <laughs> that's no. I don't know. That's just someone that's whatever. But then they asked, what percentage of people do you think knew what fiduciary meant? Oh, boy. I'm going to say less than 50. Is that your only guess? You want me to be more specific? Uh, 40, 45%. 70%. So we had no idea what the word fiduciary was. So, so only 30% knew. Yeah, I, I can imagine that. Because when we talk about being fiduciaries, people have blank stares. Yeah, fiduciary. Well, that, well that's nice. <laughs> yeah, or I'm so sorry for you. <laughs> yeah, right. Because <laughs> it sounds oh, awful. So what, what, you, what got a, you got a fiduciary Yeah, yeah they're, they're leaving the office. They're like, what did they have? <laughs> I, I'm concerned because Joe and Al said they got fiduciary disease. Seventy <laughs> percent. Uh, so what is a fiduciary? Well, you got to put your client's best interest first. Simple as that. Simple as that. Okay. Right. Only ninety-three percent of people want that, though. <laughs> the seven percent just wants to get. So uh, so what? So so what's the other way to go? So so. I, no, I'm not going. No, we're not going there. I asked. I just wanted to <laughs> bring this up, and I was going to go to another topic because that will just bore the hell out of me. <laughs> well, we could go to the suitability standard, and then we get blah blah blah. All right, I you just you well, answered it. So no, it, the, the funny thing is, is that ninety-seven or ninety-three percent want it. I don't know who the other seven percent is, but then seventy percent of them don't even know what they it is. It. So it's like you're at a French restaurant. <laughs> You know, <laughs> the waiter comes up talking French. You want it? You may have yeah. no idea what it yeah. is. Uh, yes. Next, next thing you know, you got snails. <laughs> yeah, right. That's exactly what I want. <laughs> that sounds delicious. <laughs> oh, my God. So, anyway. All right. Well. But, all right. Speaking of the fiduciary rule, is that now, it's just on retirement accounts. It's not on any other assets that you have. So, if you have a brokerage account... It, the fiduciary rule doesn't the, it, it doesn't apply. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't matter. It doesn't, you can have an advisor do whatever they want. It doesn't have to yeah, be in your best yeah, interest. Right. It doesn't. Yeah. So you know, and the Department of Labor came up with this ruling what, about three years ago, and and that it was it was so controversial for the industry. All they could really focus on was one type of asset, which is retirement assets, and. Uh, and of course, the industry is fighting it because, I mean, I guess I don't want to go too deep into this, but uh, a lot of our industry still gets paid the old-fashioned way, which is commissions. And some of those commission products that they sell you are pretty high commission products. So when you look at those retirement accounts, then you have to decide, uh, do I keep it in my current 401k plan, 403b, TSP, 457, whatever, or roll it into an individual retirement account. Yeah, right. And so th th those are very important decisions that you want to make. And there's pros and cons to each of that decision-making process. Um, here's a couple. Let's say if you want to retire early. So I'm 50 years old. I want to retire at 55. So I'm plugging away five more years. If I keep the money in the 401k plan, and if I separate from service at age 55, there is no 10% penalty when I start taking distributions from that plan. So it's ideal to keep the money into the 401k plan because then you can avoid that 10% penalty. I think most people think it's 
59 and a half. Yeah, they think it's the same rules. And so you have to have you have to separate from service with that plan at age 55 or older. But then you can take the money out of the 401k. Of course, you're going to still pay taxes on it, but you avoid that 10% penalty. Now, if you take that same exact money at age 55 and roll it to an IRA, now you got to wait till 59 and a half to take it out to avoid that 10% penalty. Right. And then if you have other plans, you could roll it into the 401k plan at 55 if you're going to blow through your money, I guess, in four and a half years. Hopefully that's <laughs> yeah, not the case. Have a, have a good time and <laughs> yeah. go out with a blaze at sure. age 60. Right. So that's one reason. Retiring early. Oh, but if I'm retiring later. Yeah, that's another one that a lot of people don't really know. So 70 and a half is when you're required to take up what's required minimum distribution, meaning you have to take money out of your 401k or IRA, uh, but there's an exception. The exception is if you're an active participant in a 401k plan and you're over 70 and a half, you do not have to take a required minimum distribution from that plan. So you could work till age 80 and you don't have to take a required distribution from that plan until the year after you retire. Right. And if you work until you drop. But if you have a business, you can't be what, more than 5% yeah. owner? Yeah, and, and so people get excited. I'm going to set up a side business right. and roll it into a solo 401k. No, that doesn't work. If you're more than a 5% owner, that, that, that rule doesn't apply. But if you work for a large company and they keep you on board, uh, you can work until your 80s or 90s. If you, as long as you're an active participant in that plan, and, there is no required minimum distribution. Interestingly enough, if it's a large company that can be flexible, maybe you're only working five hours a week. But you're still contributing to that plan, maybe not a lot, but you're still an active participant. And so then you don't have to take that required minimum distribution from that plan. You still have to take it from your IRAs, right? You still have to take it from old 401ks, but in many cases you can roll old IRAs and 401ks into the new 401k and avoid the required minimum distribution altogether. Right. No, that's a good point. It's not like you're exempt from all required minimum distributions of all accounts. It's just you're exempt of the required minimum distribution of the active account that you're participating in as you're still employed with that employer. Right. So another reason, um, if you work for a very large company, uh, the pricing of those mutual funds might be cheaper than you can get on your own. Yeah, that's true. So let's say, hey, I have a bunch of Fidelity funds, whatever. I don't know. XYZ fund company. <laughs> We're not endorsing Fidelity. <laughs> or, or, or ripping on them, right? <laughs> <laughs> so you're like, all right, I'm in this big plan. There's the law of large numbers. So if you, there's a lot of money in the plan, let's say you got 10,000 employees of this big firm and you know, even let's say 30% of them are participating in the 401k plan or 50. I mean, there's hundreds of millions of dollars probably in that plan. Right. And because of that, they get better pricing on the the mutual funds. Sure. So they have different share cl- uh, classes. It's more on the institutional side versus an individual. So if you keep it in the plan, the cost, I know this is your favorite topic, Al. The, the, the cost <laughs> is probably, topic. <laughs> it might be a little bit cheaper in a larger plan than you could purchase on your own, even if uh, potentially it's the same fund. Because you're 
not transferring. If I have an IRA to an IRA and I really like these funds at Scott's Trade and I want to move it to TD Ameritrade, a transfer works is all right, you don't sell any of the securities. It's a trustee to trustee transfer. Those securities just change hands in a different brokerage account. But when you roll the money out of a 401k plan, everything is cashed out. So you get, unless it's company stock, which I'm going to get into in a second, but you get a check and then you take that check and you deposit it into your new IRA or your existing IRA or whatever that you're doing. So you will have to repurchase shares. Now you're on an individual level versus the institutional side and you'll probably pay a little bit more. So Yeah, Joe, there's there's a few cons though from leaving it in the four oh one K. One of which is in general you have less investment choices in a four oh one K than let's say in your IRA. That's not always true. Sometimes you've got a brokerage account inside right, right. Most companies now have that brokerage link where then you can just go to the brokerage account and pick anything that you right, want within right. you know but men, but many don't. Many right. many you're limited to say twenty or forty investment choices. But that's also the downside too, because maybe it's Analysis paralysis know, for some right, people. I know, right? Right. Uh, another one is if you want to do Roth conversions, it's much easier to do Roth conversions out in a in an IRA than it is in a four hundred one k. Because if your four hundred one k has a Roth option, for example, you can generally do a Roth conversion in plan, but you can never recharacterize it, and that's that's a huge benefit of an IRA. An IRA, you could do a fifty thousand dollar Roth conversion, meaning that you're going to pay tax on fifty thousand, but that fifty thousand ends up in a Roth forever tax-free after that. But by the time you do your tax return, you realize, boy, 50000 was way too much because I made too much income. I would, I, Gosh, I wish I would have only done 30000 Well, you can recharacterize even to the filing date of the following year. In that example, you would recharacterize $20,000 from the Roth back to the IRA and therefore only pay taxes on what you end up keeping. So in our plan conversions, it's, it's irrevocable. But if you already left the company, they're not going to allow you to do a inner plan conversion anyway. It's a dormant plan. It's a dormant because you're not an active participant. Right. You can't take loans. You can't. You can't um, make contributions to it. You yeah. cannot do the conversions. Um, and another thing too, I guess if I take it from a 401k and move it into a Roth. Well, then that's you can do that. The Pension Protection Act of 06 allows us to do that now. You can go directly from a 401k or any defined contribution plan directly into a Roth before it had to touch an IRA and then from an IRA to a Roth. We still probably practice that because it's easier uh, just from um, you know paperwork standpoint because some of this stuff gets fairly complex. Yeah, you know, depending on how much money that you have and what you're trying to maneuver and what kind of you know planning that you're currently doing. So um, we like to put it into the IRA. Then you can just journal shares into the Roth. It's it's a little bit easier. You're not going to sell anything, get cash, and then get, take the cash and then invest it into the Roth. And so move it into the IRA, get it invested. Then you can journal shares into the Roth and then journal shares back into the IRA if you want to. Yeah. Another thing, Joe, is there there could be three types of dollars in your 401k. You have pre-tax. You got a tax deduction. You have Roth IRA, potentially, if you have a Roth option. You took advantage of that. And then you have 
after-tax money that's not in a Roth. In other words, some companies allow you to put more than the $18,000 or $24,000 if you're over 50 into the 401k. You put extra dollars in, you don't get a tax deduction, but you got those dollars in a retirement account. So the IRS says, you know what, if you want to roll it out, you can do this. You can take the pre-tax money that you got a tax deduction, you put that into an IRA, you take your Roth money, you put that into a Roth, and you take your after-tax money, and you can put that in a Roth, too. This is a a new uh, uh, revenue ruling about, what, two and a half, three three years ago? This is a big deal, because if you can get those after-tax dollars into a Roth, that means all future growth on those dollars is going to be tax-free, not just the original contribution amount. If you left it in the 401k, all future growth is taxed at ordinary income. Right. You can isolate that after-tax dollars and move it directly into a Roth IRA. If you keep it in the 401k, then you have to take the thing out pro rata, right, which is not nearly as a effective or efficient. So you could separate everything and get them in the right pools in the right buckets and have them grow tax-free and then keep your tax-deferred growing tax-deferred versus you got tax, taxable and then when it comes to Roth 401ks, right, there's a required minimum distribution in the Roth 401k. There is not a required minimum distribution in a Roth IRA. Yeah, I don't think hardly anyone knows that. So it's 70 and a half. If you got a Roth 401k, you have to start taking a required minimum distribution. It's tax-free, yes, but you have to start taking money out of it, yet if you roll it to a Roth IRA, you don't have to take a required distribution. Right. So, I mean, those are just easy reasons, you know, just to break it up to get it into right. the overall account. Right. You know, so there's a lot more. And then how about company stock, Yeah. Let's yeah. see if I have company stock in my 401k. I work for um, Sempra, and I got Sempra stock inside the 401k plan, or Goodrich, or G- whatever. There's something that's called net unrealized appreciation. That's where you could take that company stock outside of your 401k plan, move it directly into a brokerage account. The benefit of that is that all future growth of that stock is taxed at a capital gains rate. If I kept it in the retirement account, I'm going to be taxed at ordinary income rates. You pay tax on the basis, whatever you paid for that stock. This works really well for individuals that have worked for a large company for a long time that have a lot of company stock inside the plan that they've purchased over the last 30 some odd years because you might have the basis on some of that stock is very low and that appreciation of that stock might have been fairly large over 20 30 years so then you could just pay the tax on what you paid for it maybe it's two dollars a share and it's worth ten dollars now well you pay tax on two bucks but then the eight dollars of growth is then now taxed at a capital gains rate yeah at a capital gains rate when you sell the stock joe that's it for us today for big l clopine i'm joe anderson show's called your money your wealth So to recap today's show, we covered 401k, 403b, 457, AGI, the DOL, ETFs, HSAs, IRAs, LTC, NUA, RMDs, SEP, SARSEP, Simple, Solo, TIPS, TSP, 10 tips to boost your retirement savings, and why you don't want to be like Prince when it comes to estate planning. Make sure you have a living trust or a will. Special thanks to our guest, Dr. Wade Faust, CFA, Professor of Retirement Income at the American College. Get a free copy of Dr. Faust's new book, Reverse Mortgages, How to Use Reverse Mortgages to Secure Your Retirement. Click special offer at yourmoneyyourwealth.com or call 888-99-GOALS. That's 888-994-6257. Subscribe to the podcast at yourmoneyyourwealth.com through your favorite podcatcher or on iTunes, where you can also check out our ratings and reviews. And remember, this show is all about you. If there's something you'd like to hear on Your Money, Your Wealth, just email info at purefinancial.com. Listen next week for more 
more Your Money, Your Wealth, presented by Pure Financial Advisors. For your free financial assessment, visit purefinancial.com. Pure Financial Advisors is a registered investment advisor. This show does not intend to provide personalized investment advice through this broadcast and does not represent that the securities or services discussed are suitable for any investor. Investors are advised not to rely on any information contained in the broadcast in the process of making a full and informed investment decision. Your Money, Your Wealth opening song, Motown Gold by Carl James Pestka is licensed under a Creative Commons license.